Will you pray with me as we dig into the word? Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. We want to honor you. We want to honor you in the way we study your word, in the way we allow your word to shape us and to form something new in us. And God, I know that you have a word to give this morning. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do it powerfully. I pray, God, that you would use my voice in any way possible, God, in order to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and strengthen your church. And so God, do your work. Holy Spirit, go out right now, meet us wherever we're at, and allow your word to accomplish great gains. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I was reading a book a while ago by a pastor known as Francis Chan. I've shared this story a couple times before, but it's worth repeating as we begin our time in the Word today. He did a little bit of a personal survey with a number of pastors around him. And he asked a few pastors, he said, you know, I want to understand what you think your congregants want and expect out of you as a pastor as you lead your church. What do your people want? And in general, the answers were something like this. Well, I think that what they want is a really good service, a really good Sunday service. They want strong, age-specific ministries. They want a certain style, volume, length of music, a well-communicated sermon. They want parking. And most importantly, they're going to want a lot of coffee when they get in. Don't forget the coffee. And then that pastor will ask another question. He'll say, I want you to think through some of the lists of Jesus' commands for the church, his bride. What do you think Jesus wants out of his church? Those same pastors will then respond something like this. Well, love one another as I have loved you. That's John chapter 15 verse 12. Look after widows and orphans in their distress. That's James 1.27. Make disciples of all nations. That's Matthew 28.19. And then Francis Chan will ask these same pastors the next question. He says, what would upset your people more if you didn't provide the things from the first list or if you didn't follow the commands of the things in the second list? It's a convicting question and it's a sad reality that many churches have a great chasm between what Jesus commanded his church to look like and what the church actually is on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis. Now I want to ask you a very similar question. What do you expect out of the church in your heart of hearts? Maybe before I gave that opening picture for you, what do you expect out of the church? What do you expect to receive and what do you expect to give to the church? What do you think the rest of the people in your church expect to receive from you? Is the mission of your church the mission you have for your life? Are you in alignment? Are you living your life in such a way that you are an ambassador for Christ living out the mission of the local church you've been called to? Here's one for you. Is your life marked by an utter dependence on the other people God has placed in your local church to come alongside you? And if not, I have to ask the question, why not? So long as consumerism is our posture towards the church, we will experience very little actual spiritual growth in our walk with Christ. It just won't happen. Today we continue through our study of the book of Romans. We're going verse by verse through this entire book, and we're right in the middle of chapter 12 right now. And man, it has been a good journey so far. Last week, Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Noah opened up for us. And we got into this powerful verse where we're told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 
In other words, we're, we're not to allow culture to shape how we think, not to allow culture to dictate the way we think about the issues and what we're living for and how we're living, but we are to get our, 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 our roadmap from the Word of God and we are to live in total accordance with it, constantly allowing our mind to be renewed by the Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul continues that command. The command was to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And now what Paul is going to do is he's going to lay out the setting and the framework and the environment whereby a Christian will allow that to take place. So if a Christian wants to actually be renewed, actually be sanctified, actually be strengthened in their faith, what's the framework they got to live by? And what we find is that your spiritual maturity is absolutely dependent on the other people inside your local church on the other side, people inside of this church. Now, from this particular text today, what I want to try to do is draw out three requirements, three requirements for each and every follower of Christ in this church if they are going to actually grow in their spiritual faith. Three requirements of you if you're going to be a part of this church and grow in your walk with God. Requirement number one. Let's go. Number one, leave self-distorted views of yourself at the door. Leave self-distorted views of yourself at the door. A few weeks ago, I took my children to an apple orchard out near Peoria, Illinois. And what a great day we had. It's more of a carnival than it is an apple orchard, but we had a great day there overall. And at one point, uh, inside one of the barns, they had one of those kind of wiggly carnival mirrors. You know the mirrors I'm talking about? You stand in front of it, and, and if you stand too close to it, it stretches you, and it makes you look far taller than you actually are. And if you stand too far away from it, it kind of shortens you and it makes you look far shorter than you actually are. Well, in our verses today, the first thing we're told to avoid is to make sure we don't make either of those two mistakes, to see ourselves far taller or far smaller than we actually are. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now let's pause right there. Paul begins, he says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. Now, when he says by the grace given to me, what he's saying is he's talking about the, the form of grace that was given to him to make him an apostle. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who helped establish the early church. And that was a gift of grace he received. He didn't earn that. In fact, if you know Paul's story, he was on a road the exact opposite direction. He was persecuting the church of Christ. But he received grace, just like everyone else has received grace. And the form of his grace, in terms of the gifting he was given, was to be an apostle. And so when he says, I say to everyone among you, that comes with, a, with, a, with an authoritative command as one sent from Jesus Christ as an apostle. And he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. This is the first mistake, that of spiritual pride. You want to come into the church, you want to actually experience sanctification, grow in your walk with God, you've got to leave pride at the door. This is where we stretch ourselves, we make ourselves seem bigger than we actually are. Now this is not just a trivial call to humility. The, the, the reality of spiritual pride is a direct attack on the gospel itself. In fact, your, your entry into the kingdom of God as a whole is dependent on you actually realizing your spiritual depravity and your spiritual humility and coming before God in such humility that you realize, I am the chief of sinners. 
That there's no reason I should be able to stand in the midst of the congregation of the saints and lift up my hands in worship to the King of Kings as one who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I didn't earn that. That's not on me. That was the gift of grace that was given to me. Therefore, pride can be left at the door. The Christian's humility is, is the root. It's kind of the starting place of right thinking before a holy God. Remember Abraham's words. If you go backwards just a little bit. Go back to Genesis chapter 18, 27. Abraham talking to God. Abraham answered and said this, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which I am but dust and ashes. You, you see the identity Abraham had of himself? He recognized when he came before a holy God that, that he was but dust and ashes before the holiness of the God of the Bible. Or how about Job? Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6 Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, this is the posture of entry into the kingdom of God and entry into significant contribution and receiving from God's church. If you're going to compare yourself to anyone, you compare yourself to Jesus Christ. And in that comparison, what we realize is that every one of us have fallen short. We, we, we haven't lived up. And this is where true humility, spiritual, spiritual humility, is rooted in. Our understanding that we've fallen short of the glory of God and each of us are the chief of sinners. When you assume a posture of spiritual pride in any way, in any way, when you assume that, that posture, you rob the church of the fullness of yourself. While the world strives to exhibit one-upsmanship among themselves, it's the Christian that takes the lowly path to glory. We're constantly going lower in order to magnify Christ more. And it's not a false, pasted-on going lower. We're not doing it with an attitude behind the scene as if we really feel like we're more significant than we're being forced to go, but we're putting on airs and we're putting on a show so it looks like we're going low because that's what our church told us to do. No, no, like Abraham, like Job, we, we repent and we realize our dust and ashes. If you don't actually feel humble in the church, it's because you haven't spent enough time in this precious book and realized the reality of the condition of your soul before a holy God. Paul's already covered all of that in Romans chapter 5. You must allow God to form a genuine humility in your soul. But there's an equal opposite mistake which we can oftentimes make. The text says, rather think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. You see, in Christ we're self-denying but we're not self-loathing. And some of you need to hear this very clearly. In Christ, we're self-denying, but we're not self-loathing. See, once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you know your condition. You know your place. You're humble because you realize that you have received grace upon grace. It wasn't of you. Jesus died on the cross for a wretch like you. But you also now have a new identity. You don't stay in a place of self-loathing because you realize that you're now a son or a daughter adopted into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. That casts off self-loathing at the door. In Christ, God considers you family. He knows you. He loves you. He, he walks with you. He will not forget you. He knows your moments. He knows your days. He knows your suffering. He knows your struggles. He knows everything you're going through today, and he knows everything you will experience tomorrow. Now, a brief pastoral word before I move on from this. 
Some of you in this church, and I know because I have the blessing of being your pastor, some of you in this church are in significant seasons of depression right now. And, and I'll say this, it, it's come on because of a number of very real world situations we're in. COVID has forced us into a lot of isolation and some of you who already were prone to depression and things like that have gone much further and you and we are in dire places across this church. Some of you have begun to think such low thoughts of yourself that you wonder, what real contribution could I make into the church? What real contribution can I make into another person's life? And to you, what I need to say is this. We are to think of ourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the gift God's assigned. The sober judgment is not one of self-loathing. It's thinking of yourself rightly. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the condition. Allow God's word to come to you and tell you that you have been adopted into the family of God by Christ Jesus when you accepted him on the cross. See, look at this. Look, whenever Satan comes around and he whispers in your ear those doubts and you get tempted to, to, to get so depressed about your condition, thinking that you have nothing good and nothing to offer, you need to actually put a hand up to Satan because that's what he is. He is the deceiver. He is the accuser. He loves to tell Christians that there's something that they're not. And you look at him, you put your hand up, and you declare your sonship and your daughtership in the kingdom of God. You cast him out. He has no place. We think of ourselves with sober judgment. Now, notice how the text discusses a variety of measures of gifts. In the kingdom of God, each person has a different and unique role to play within the church. Remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells this parable about giving out different talents. To one was given five talents, to another was given two talents, and to another was given one talent. The parable is not about the importance of the one who received the five over the one who received the one. The parable was about living faithfully with what God has assigned you to do. Now, God has each person a unique role and a unique responsibility. Each person, depending on the person and depending on God's divine judgment, has received a variety of measures of a variety of gifts. And we are to act faithfully within those measures. But we must not have self-distorted views of ourselves. We'll never, never receive the blessing of sanctification walking around with self-distorted views. Requirement number two. We must develop an utter dependence on those inside of the church. We must develop an utter dependence on those inside of the church. Verses 4 and 5 read this way. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Paul describes the life of the church as a connection of relationships connected so strongly that it's like talking about the different parts of the body connected with the human body. The idea is really simple. It's, it's not that hard to understand. We're all interdependent on each other. The foot cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The knee cannot say to the elbow, I have no need of you. Each person's wired differently for a purpose to contribute into the larger body as a whole. Now this has one very significant point for us. And that's this. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian detached or disconnected from a local church. You hear that? 
Now, I hear people regularly tell me that they're Christians. I love having conversations with people about their walk with God. Where are they? What's their faith like? And I hear people tell me all the time that they're Christians, but they have no real relationship to a local church. They're not connected. They're not known. They're not invested in a local church. Or they're Christians, but they only go to church. They have one they go to, but they only go every once in a while. They stop in on important occasions or, you know, every few months. What spiritual pride isn't that what Paul just warned us against? Thinking too highly of yourself? I mean, what, what spiritual pride is it to think that you, as one Christian, have all you need to actually grow in your Christian walk and glorify Jesus Christ in your life? You got it all. You don't need the other gifts of the church. You don't need the community. You don't need the preaching. You don't need the singing. You don't need the praying. You don't need the prophesying. You don't need the encouraging. You don't need any of it. You're good on your own. What hubris. What spiritual pride. To say that you're a Christian at the same time that you are not utterly dependent on the giftings of the rest of the people in your church and you don't need those connections is to make a foolish mistake and to fail to grow in your walk with Christ. And can I tell you this? Every time, literally 100% of the time, every time I see someone begin to disconnect from the church, they've been plugged in and then they maybe, they stop going to small group. The season goes by, and I talk to them, I'm just too busy right now, it's going to be a short season. And then that short season becomes a longer season. Or they, they stop coming to church, they're not around so often, they're coming every once in a while. Can I tell you, 100% of the time I see that happen as a pastor, it's only a matter of time before I'm seriously, seriously fearful about where they are with the Lord. We are dependent on each other. I was recently reading a study that was done by a group called the Barna Research Group. Their 2020 updates on the state of the church. And they're doing these yearly annual kind of studies on people in the church, particularly in America, and and what people are thinking and behaving like. And there were two particular findings that really stuck out to me in the 2020 discoveries. Here's first one. Nearly two in five churchgoers, this is talking about American churchgoers, nearly two in five churchgoers report regularly attending multiple churches. Now, essentially, this means that there's a sharp decline in church loyalty. In other words, Christians are increasingly hopping from church to church. And what that shows me is that there is a deep sense of consumerism that is plaguing the American church. I go to this church this week, this church this week. I like that preacher on this day. I like that band on this day. I kind of float from church to church. Two in five churchgoers report that. Number two, churchgoers are divided on the value of church. Many churchgoers readily admit that they believe people are tired of church as usual. Their assessment of the value of church is therefore dependent on whether or not the church service meets their personal needs and demands. So because the church is not necessarily meeting the things that they think they need, not necessarily what the word says the church ought to be, but because it's not meeting their personal needs, they're questioning the value of the church as a whole. Let me see if I can put it this way for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, we're told of a situation in a local church, the church in Corinth. And the, ch- the situation is that there's someone in the church that's found in deep, deep sin. They're a member of the church, and all of a sudden it's discovered that they're in deep, deep sin. And they, they try to get the person to repent, and they are not repenting of their sin, and they're stuck in it. You know what Paul says to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2? Let that person who has done this be removed from among you. 
So the, the discipline that the sinner who is a member of the church, who's unrepentant, living in very deep consequential sin, the discipline they are to go under is to be removed from the gathering of the church. This is what we call church discipline. Now, church discipline has a long-term goal. The goal is not to just forget somebody and to cast them out. The goal is to cast them out for a short season, covered in prayer, for the sake of their restoration. Because here's what's supposed to happen. When that person is unable to meet weekly with the church, when they're out on their own and they have to function in a way like a Lone Ranger Christian, they're at the enemy's beckoning. They can be attacked by Satan all day long and they don't have their guards up. Why? Because they got no one praying with them, laying their hands on them. They're not receiving from the preaching. They're not receiving from the community. They're on their own. And what is being formed in that person is this deep, deep crying out from the soul, I need my church. How many more weeks do I have to go in this discipline because I need my church? God forbid I can't gather with my church. And then after a season, what happens is that that person is restored and they choose, they willingly choose. God uses church discipline to help them get over that sin so that they can be welcomed back into the church. Now here's what's crazy to me. Here's what's crazy. In our modern day, many of us are self-selecting ourselves into being removed from the body. When someone decides to attend church every other week or occasionally or hop from church to church and not actually be committed, what you're doing is you're self-selecting church discipline onto yourself. And you're robbing yourself of the very mechanism that God has put in place to make sure that you're strengthened against the enemy's attacks and strengthened to glorify Christ through your life. You're self-selecting church discipline. And here's the gut punch for me as a pastor. Not only are many in the church today doing that, but most are oblivious to it and don't even care because they have a consumeristic mindset of what the church is and they think they got everything figured out on their own and the church, the gathered body, is a non-essential in their life. Meanwhile, there's no real growth taking place. See, so, so many people in the church today, they're going through life and it's week after week after week after week, year after year after year, same thing. No growth, no growth, no growth. I'm going to read my Bible. Doesn't really happen. I'm going to pray. Doesn't really happen. I'm going to, I'm going to grow stronger. I'm not going to make those same mistakes. Doesn't really happen. Maybe it's God's design of being dependent on the local body, being a member of a local church, actually works. And what we need more than anything is to, is to reinstall God's vision for the church. Now for a moment, let's consider all of this in light of COVID-19. If you were to go back, this time of COVID-19 is very unique. It's unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. My greatest fear is that what is happening is that because many of you are receiving in this season our online resources, and I'm grateful that we're able to do this. If you've been following with me, you know I have been challenging you. If you're healthy and if you're able to join us at our in-person gathering and to use these if, if, if you are not able or you're unhealthy or you're around people who need to make sure that, they are, that you are as safe as possible. What I, my fear is that as you gather at home and you're using these online resources, that there is going to be a new normal that slowly gets developed in your heart where what you're doing right now, watching a sermon online detached from your church community, begins to feel okay. 
where once, where once you needed the church body, you were dependent on them, you longed for them. Now you've done this online church thing enough that it becomes normal. And if that becomes normal for you, then we are utterly hopeless for the future. Once COVID is over, my fear is that what's going to happen is that you're going to wake up and that you're not, not going to come to church because there's a fear of what might happen to your health if you come, but you're not going to come to church because online church is available. You can just sit home and basically get the same thing if you're at home. It's easier. You can do it from home. You're used to it. And what I want to tell you is that we need to cast off that heretical ideology from the church that cannot begin for a second to sink into your heart and your understanding of what the church is. Online church is not a replacement for the church assembled. It is not. It's not the same thing. It is absolutely fundamentally not the same thing. In COVID, there is a reason for this season that we are in providing these online resources for you. But this is not the answer. This, what you're doing online right now, is not the answer. If in your heart of hearts, when you sit down to watch this, today, I'm asking you this today. If in your heart of hearts, when you're watching this online, if there's not something inside of you that is not crying out with a searing pain, I need my church body. This is not it. I need my church body. And this season of COVID-19, is, it cripples me. The fact that I have to live as if I'm under church discipline away from my body. And if there's no actual pain inside of you to be gathered once again with the people of God, I have to ask what the church got wrong. Either, either you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is or the church has failed to live up to what God called it to be. One of those two things is taking place. Here's what I tell you. Hunger for God's design. Hunger for it. Strive after it. Create it. We need to develop this body mentality among each other where we're dependent and we're clinging to each other for real spiritual growth. The season we're in is real. I'm not making light of this season, but I am challenging you to not let this become your new normal. We must develop an utter dependence on those inside your church. Now, requirement number three. Know your gifting, know your gifting, and pour it out incessantly into your church. Know your gifting and pour it out incessantly into your church. Now, this is remarkable. When you become a follower of Christ, Jesus equips you with the Holy Spirit and gives you a particular set of spiritual gifts, supernatural endowments for the purpose of pouring into the local church and building up the bride of Christ. It's not a natural thing to have a spiritual gift. When you accepted Jesus Christ, you were given gifts at that time. And not everyone has the same gift. Some have this gift, some have that gift. And we are to each come together, use the fullness of all God's gift in the context of a local church. Verses 6 through 8 of Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace which was given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. 
Now, this is not a full list of spiritual gifts. There's other lists in the New Testament that talk about other spiritual gifts that God has given out. But in this abbreviated list, we begin to get this sense that God has unique individuals assigned with unique sets of gifts in order to pour them into the local church to build one another up. And each of us are fully dependent on everyone else's giftings. Now, I want to go through these and walk through them. First one is prophecy. Some of you have the gift of prophecy, and you're called to use it in proportion to the faith. Now, this particular gift needs a bit more explanation than the other ones, particularly in, particularly in our context of Park Community Church, where we have a strong tendency to reject the gift of prophecy. Most of us, when we think of prophecy, we think of Old Testament prophets, and that they used to stand and they tell the future of what God was going to do. Now, there is a respect to prophecy that might have a future telling to it, but there's a commentator named Doug Moo who gives a great definition of what prophecy in the New Testament is, and I think this is very helpful. He says this, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament churches was aiding the church by relaying to it truth gained from a revelation. That truth might be something in the future, but more often it denotes an insight into present circumstances. So those with, this, with the prophetic gift, when you're given this gift, you tend to receive either visions or words or statements or things that need to be told to others in the church in order to lift up the church and encourage the church. Now, Park, I found that we're very hesitant to engage with this particular type of gift, the gift of prophecy, and that is much to our folly. It's foolish to reject this gift. I have personally been richly blessed by those who have this gift and who have spoken prophetic words into my life. Not that long ago, I was at a retreat where a wonderful woman came up to me and she prayed over me and there were words of prophecy that were prayed over me as well. And can I tell you something? I am still today, now that, this was a long time ago, I'm still running on those fumes. I mean, that, that is still serving me. And what I do when I come in and preach, it was filled by those prophetic words being spoken into me. This is what God does. He speaks through others into your life and challenges and encourages and grows. And we need those prophetic words spoken into us. I would be lacking right now if that woman had not spoken those words from the Lord into my life. This is what prophetic words do. They encourage. They embolden for ministry. They, they heal. We need to foster this in the church. And notice the gift is to be used in proportion to the faith. What that means is that we've got to make sure that when we receive words from God to share with other people, that, that we're not going out of the bounds of Scripture. If anybody ever tells you, I received this word from God, and it's out of the bounds or contradictory to what the word of God explicitly states, that person is a false prophet, and you should not listen to what they say. Now, the second gift. If serving, if serving, let them serve. Serving, it's the same word where we get the term deacon from, diakonos, to serve. And someone with this gift has a particular knack for serving behind the scenes, You'll find these people serving in any number of ways. At events, they'll oftentimes be the ones who are cleaning or preparing or setting up. On Sundays, you might find people with the gift of serving behind the scenes, vacuuming, getting everything ready, making sure that the preacher has everything they need and making sure there's a bottle of water available for the preacher so his voice doesn't run dry. At our church in South Loop, we have a wonderful woman with a very strong gift of serving, Miss Rosa. You all know Miss Rosa very well. She gets here at 6 a.m. on normal Sundays every week. 
in order to set up the coffee station, in order to set up the table with the treats for folks when they're walking in to make sure people are welcomed well. That's the gift of serving. Now, if you've got that gift, pour it into your church. One of the mistakes modern churches do is that we hire staff to fulfill all the needs of the church. And that is a great mistake. Many of you have the gift of serving, and rather than depending on staff to get a lot of the work done that needs to get done in the church, it should be those with the gift of serving who are coming in and and serving strongly. Next is teaching. We're told those with the gift of teaching, to teach. If you've got the gift of teaching, you've got to do what, what Paul instructed Timothy to do, to fan that gift into flames. Let your pastor know that you believe you have that gift so we can have eyes on you and begin to train you and and teach you how to do that even better. Look for opportunities to teach. Next is exhorting. Exhorting. What is the gift of exhortation? This particular word's got a wide range of meaning. To exhort means to encourage. It means to comfort and to console. Now, now the gift of exhortation can be used kind of on a big scale, right? So through writing and teaching, and you can encourage people in that way. It can also be used more often in the form of counseling. Those with exhortation have a, have a particular spiritual gift to come alongside people and encourage those who are lonely, who are broken, who are suffering. You'll find people with the gift of exhortation powerfully being used and you'll find fruit in their life. When they come alongside someone who's suffering, they're there to put an arm around them and speak words of truth over them. I spoke with a young man just this last week. He told me that he has this this thing about him that when he walks into a room, the first place he goes, he looks for people who are sitting by themselves, people who are facing the wall. And he says, I go sit with them and I talk with them and and I want to lift them up. That's the gift of exhortation. The next one is generosity or contribution. A few ways this gift can be interpreted. It's when you pour the things you have into the church. You want to use the things God's given you to bless the church, whether that's your home, whether that's your car, whether it's something you own. Oftentimes it's money. The church needs money. In fact, most commentators agree the primary mechanism or outlet for the gift of contribution is finances and pouring finances into the church. Now look, some people are uniquely wired by God, gifted by God, to earn money to give towards kingdom ministry and kingdom work. And we're told to do that, if you have that gift, you're told to do that with sincerity. Not begrudgingly, not kind of like, I hate that I have to do this and release this. You're told to pour it with generosity into the church. Now, some of you are listening to that and saying, I hope I got that gift. (laughs) I, I, I I, I hope I get to have that gift. That sounds like the one I'd like to have. And to you, let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 6. To those who desire to be rich, you will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is a heavy gift if you have the gift of generosity and contribution. And I want you to know that you should be seeking out prayer. You should be seeking out those to come around you and make sure that you don't fall into temptation because that gift is a heavy one. And yet it is used powerfully to fund kingdom ministry in the church and across the globe. 
Next is the gift of leadership. Those with the gift of leadership, you may be leading in many ways in the marketplace, but if you've got the gift of leadership, pour it with zeal into the local church. Lift others up, develop ministries, strengthen ministries, bring your gifts of leadership and administration into the church so that we can actually run ministries that are effective. Next is mercy, and you're called to do that with cheerfulness. Those who have the gift of mercy, they pour themselves into the church, and you'll find them coming alongside people who are severely broken. Those in this gift have a very tender heart, and they're able to provide comfort to those who are suffering immeasurably. And in so doing, when you, when you love on people in the hospital, when you love on people who are dying, when you love on people who are, who are suffering through the loss of a loved one, something like that, you bring the love of Christ into people's lives. See, sometimes folks, they think that's just the pastor's job to come alongside people in their suffering. No, it's everybody's job. But those who particularly have that gift of mercy, pour yourself into the lives of those who are suffering. Now, what's the point of all of this? What's he getting at after all of this? It's very simple. Every Christian must commit themselves into the local church. You are a part of the body, uniquely assigned to build up the church. And not only will you rob yourself of the ability to actually grow in your faith if you fail to do so, but you will rob others of the giftings God's given you to be poured into the local church. At Park, we believe every Christian must make a formal commitment to the church. You must actually become a member. If you're not yet a member of the church, if you've just been attending for a season, I want to challenge you. You should formally become a member so that there's an accountability between us and you to actually make good on passages like this that tell you that you got to pour your gifts into the church and receive from the church abundantly. Across Park, I know there's membership classes coming up at South Loop. We've got a class this evening. You can register for it before the day is over. Don't, don't, don't stay disconnected from the church. See, I want Christ's church to be so full of Christ-likeness. I want Christ's church to be so full of Holy Spirit power and and God's people pouring into one another and loving one another and and praying with one another and laying hands on one another and receiving from one another and and casting off worldliness and and casting off sin and, and putting our hand up to Satan and saying, you can't go any further in this person's life and receiving the fullness of all the spiritual gifts and seeing broken people come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time because that kind of church is so powerful and beautiful for everyone who looks in on it because certainly God is present that Christ would look down on his bride and he'd say that's the church I designed. Park I want to call you into this. In this season don't forget what you've been called into. It's the church. It's Christ's bride. Fight for it. Strive for it. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father we do love you. We thank you for your church and we don't want to take it lightly. We never want to take your church for granted. We want to honor you and how we contribute and how we lean in. God, may you receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.